Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will take a few moments for you to make sure that you are spiritually prepared. Scripture teaches that we walk in the light or we walk in darkness, one or the other. Can't have it both ways, although a lot of people try. When we sin, we shift gears into carnality. That's the default position of our sin nature, or of our body, of our, of our life, is to uh, when we stop walking by the Spirit, is to live on the, according to the power of the sin nature. So to recover, we confess sin. Simply put, that means that we admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, and instantly we are uh, forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with God, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege to come together this evening. We thank you for the beautiful weather we've had today and yesterday, and we're thankful for the fact that this spring so far we're ahead in our rainfall, and so we don't have to face the specter of drought, at least at this point. Father, we're thankful that we live in a country that still has freedom. We're thankful for the fact that we do have a number of leaders who are not ashamed of their Christianity, their biblical foundation, and who are willing to emphasize that. And, Father, we pray that you would give strength and courage to many others that would stand up and stand in the gap. And especially we continue to pray for our Supreme Court as they look at the issues related to changing the definition of marriage, and we pray that they would stand firm on the fact that marriage is a legal institution between a man, one man, and one woman. Father, we pray that you would uh, also continue to work in our lives and this church, challenging us to reach out to those around us, uh, being sensitive to opportunities to plant seeds, to proclaim the gospel, and to uh, explain our faith and the hope that is within us to those who are around us. And, Father, tonight, as we study your word, help us to think uh, clearly and critically about what your word says, that we may apply these things in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's Tuesday night, so we must be in 1 Samuel, right? 1 Samuel chapter 1, but we won't be here a lot. We're still looking at the doctrine of... Let me, wait a minute. I may have opened the wrong... No, I didn't. I thought I changed this. Did I not change it? Okay, well, we'll change the title later. We're still looking at uh, the doctrine dealing with emotion and the Christian life. This is such an issue that is confusing to a lot of people. 
There are those, and there has been a stream of people like this since probably the late first century, that I think of emotion as a criteria for the spiritual life. How do I know if I'm worshiping? I feel like I'm worshiping. So that emotion becomes the standard for whether we know we're walking by the Spirit or not. Today I was briefly looking at a, uh, a discussion on uh, related to dispensationalism on Facebook, one of the many different study groups that are out there on, uh, on the topic, and one person there, they were debating whether how to handle a certain kind of a situation, said, well, we just have to rely, we just have to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't want to get into this at the time, so I didn't say anything. Said, well, how are you going to determine that? Does the Spirit operate apart from His Word? Or does the Spirit only operate through His Word? And as I've made clear many times, it's the second option. The Spirit doesn't operate apart from His Word. If He did, how would you determine it? One of my favorite seminary professors many years ago used to say, if you can't, if you can't figure out and describe the difference between the, the, the Holy Spirit moving you and indigestion, then you can't teach that doctrine. It's objective. It is rational, meaning it is related to content in the Word. It is not related to how we feel. It is not uh, the role and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not related to just navel-gazing and trying to get some sort of liver quiver to know whether to do X or whether to do Y. Revelation has ceased or it hasn't ceased. And we don't uh, come to the scripture and say, well, I want to know what this means, so I have to wait for the Spirit to move me. Now, there have been many tremendous leaders in the church and pastors who've held views of that, which is called mysticism, and light mysticism, and it's, but that kind of subjectivity has always negatively impacted uh, their understanding of the word. And what happens when you live in a, a culture, you experience a culture where people go too far in one direction, what always happens after that? There's a reaction, and it goes too far in the other direction. And the other direction tries to remove all emotion from the, any position of legitimacy within the Christian life. And, and in, in this kind of a scenario, then any kind of emotion becomes equivalent to sin. And so there are people who are just, and there are a lot of Christians and other, not just Christians, but there are a lot of folks who just because of their personality, or because of their background, or because of a num any number of other variables in their life, aren't real comfortable with emotion. So it's very easy for them to move in the direction of, of almost saying that e emotion in the Christian life is all wrong. It, and what I'm saying is when we look at the Scripture, there is a, a role and a correct place for emotion in the Christian life. We have to understand what it is. We don't want to run from it on the one hand, but we don't embrace it as the 
core value within within the Christian life. And basically what I've described for you is the di- difference between the charismatic movement and the non-charismatic movement in, in a lot of ways. And so we have to look at what the Scripture says. And I'm just focusing in on one little area uh, in this ser- series, or in this, this series of 1 Samuel, related to the grief and the weeping and the bitterness of soul that is experienced by uh, by Hannah. Now, last time, I always like to start making sure we understand the context here, that the Lord uses these events and is sovereignly overriding events. He's closed Hannah's womb for a purpose. He is preparing to deliver Israel from her enemies by grace. And there's really sort of a wordplay there, a pun, because Hannah's name in Hebrew means gracious woman. So the Lord is going to deliver Israel through through grace. He's going to honor Hannah's faith by answering her prayers. That's the first verse down through the end of her uh, prayer in chapter 2, uh, verse 11. And then he's going to open up Hannah's womb, and this occurs in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. And then what we're looking at is this first subdivision. Uh, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb to prepare uh, for the deliverance of Israel through a gracious, miraculous birth. And so as we looked at this last time, I went through the background, went through the issue, several issues, the doctrine of the uh, of the barren woman, and ha- how God uses situations like this in the life of Israel, bringing about a change that can only be attributed to him. But as we look at this, we see Hannah. Now, this is important because there are some people, and I taught this first time I ever taught Samuel, I thought, this woman is in reaction. She's overly emotional. She's having a meltdown. She is not uh, responding to the adversity like she should. But when you, when I, after an additional 25 years of studying the Word, I realized this, there's nothing negative said about Hannah. Anywhere in the Scripture, this is, she's always presented as and she's presented here as a woman who is focused on the Lord as the solution, even though she is going through a lot of emotional turmoil. But you see, we come to this where in a lot of cases you see somebody who's being emotional and somehow that's wrong. But there are times in life when we are legitimately emotional. It's what we do with that emotion that is important and that's significant. So she's in this marriage situation where her husband has taken a second wife because of her infertility so that he can raise up a son that would uh, carry on the family line and someone to whom the inheritance, the land possession of the family would be passed. And so her uh, the, the second wife, Penina, constantly digs at her, irritates her, makes fun of her, lords it over her, emphasizes the fact that she's able to have uh, child after child after child, and Hannah is continuously barren. She would accuse her of saying, God doesn't like you, God doesn't bless you. This would go on day in and day out, and whenever we're in circumstances like that, in that kind of people testing, 
then it is difficult. Some of you have been in situations like that. Uh, sometimes this occurs within a family. Sometimes it occurs at work. Uh, sometimes it occurs in other organizations that we're a part of, and we don't have any uh, option but to put up with it. And that's what's going on on here in the word, as I put up here on the screen. Kaas indicates to be grieved. It also indicates anger. And in some places, it's hard to tell what the text says. In fact, if you look at New King James Version, it'll translate the word grief. If you look at another translation, it translates the same word anger. And I think what it basically is is indicating is that a person's emotions are distressed in a complex way and that they are they're facing this kind of a problem. Now, one of the things I want to point out, I want to, want to go back to these verses I looked at initially uh, last week, just talking about emotion. But one of the points I'm going to make is that emotion is a responder. Now, the, a lot of us think that emotion is responding to circumstances and situations, but the circumstances and situations wash through our mind. It doesn't just go directly to emotion. It goes through our perception. And what we see when we, and this happens in just a nanosecond, something happens. Maybe it's a negative set of circumstances or a positive set of circumstances, whatever it is. But instantly and almost non-consciously, we interpret that set of circumstances a certain way, and then we react or respond to that set of circumstances based on our belief system, based on the grid that has, that we've used to interpret that set of events, that set, that set of circumstances. So what we see here, let's just look at Hannah, for example. There's a set of, of very difficult circumstances where she is... Uh, she's ridiculed, she is made fun of, she is belittled by uh, someone in the home that's the, the second wife, and so she reacts to that. And it would be easy for her to succumb to a belief that Penina's right, I'm useless as a woman. This is what my culture tells me, that for me to be fulfilled as a woman, I have to give birth to a male child. So, so you have a certain, the, the, the emotion is related to the response to the belief. Let me give you a more basic illustration. If you got up in the morning and you looked at the paper, and let's say yesterday you really broke down and lost all self-control and you went out and bought about 10 lottery tickets, and it's Powerball time, and you, uh, you, you pulled out your scratch-off cards or whatever it is, and you looked at your numbers, and then you looked at the numbers printed in the paper, and you looked again, and you double-checked them and triple-checked them, and you won $190 million. How do you think you feel? Yeah, you feel, you feel great. You know, I don't have a single problem that the rapture and $5 million wouldn't cure. I think most of us feel that way at different times, okay? So all of a sudden, you just feel great. You are on top of the world. You are elated, ecstatic, and, and your emotions are just as, as high as they possibly ever been. Then you run into your spouse and you say, look, we won the Powerball. They look down and they said, you need to put your glasses on. 
That's a zero, not an eight. You didn't win diddly. (laughs) Now how do you feel? You've gone from up here, that high manic state, to where you are just at the bottom of the barrel. Because your belief changed. What you believe shapes how you feel. How you feel is a response to what you believe to be true. If you're told that your child has died, you're going to have one set of emotions. But as soon as you hear that that's not true, your emotions shift. They are responders to what you believe to be true in your mind. This is very important because a lot of times in the Christian life, uh, we operate on false belief systems that come out of our sin nature and come out of paganism, and the consequence is that that we don't experience the kind of happiness that we think we should be experiencing because we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have uh, false concepts that float around in our head, false ideas about the nature of reality and how uh, I should be viewed, everything from how I view myself, how I uh, uh, what kind of what makes me valuable as a person or significant as an individual? All of these kinds of beliefs shape how we feel about ourselves at any given time. Some of you know what I mean when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you see your mother or your dad looking back at you. Some people think that's a great thing; other people not so much. It just depends on your your belief system. So this is what's going on with Hannah. Now, here we have another circumstance. I pointed this out. This is talking about the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler is, is very focused on his spiritual life, and he thinks he's doing a great job keeping the law. And he is doing a great job at keeping the law. And he comes to the Lord expecting a good pat on the back, and, and the Lord says, well, if you're really going to make it as a disciple, you need to sell all that you have. Now, he thinks that's really what he has to be. The Lord, I believe the Lord is pointing out some flaws in his thinking, and he goes away sorrowful because he didn't hear what he thought he should hear. It isn't, his belief system caused him to react negatively in terms of his, of his emotions. Our Lord Jesus Christ goes to... Gethsemane takes uh, Peter and James and John with him and goes off apart from the other disciples to pray. He knows exactly what's going to happen the next day on Golgotha. As a result of that knowledge, he has has certain emotions that are stirring his soul. He is sorrowful and deeply distressed. My point here is, is our emotion is not independent of our thinking, of our thought life, what we believe to be true at any point in time. Later on, I'm going to say that emotions are the window to the soul. I'm having certain emotions. Now, what's going on? Now, sometimes it might be hormonal. Sometimes it might be related to one or two other things. But most of the time, it's related to what is going on between your ears. That's where spiritual warfare takes place. It takes place between your ears. It's not doing battle with the devil, which is what the emotional charismatics think. It is doing battle with ideas and beliefs that are embedded within our soul. And when we come to Christ, we still have a lot of that garbage in our soul. And part of what we have to do is identify it, 
and take it out uh, through the use of the Word of God as we go through that, as, as we grow and mature as believers. Now, another thing I pointed out as we look at, at Hannah is that she has bitterness of soul in verse 10. Now, a lot of people look at that phrase and they see bitterness. And they say, see, this is her problem. She's bitter. That was a mistake I made some 25 years ago. But as I pointed out last time, when we look at this idiom as it's used, even the term bitterness in some places simply refers to something that is harsh and difficult and distressing. It doesn't mean that the person has become bitter. It just means they are experiencing difficulty and they are grieving. And these uh, three verses in Job uh, point that out. I also pointed out the situation with the Shunammite woman. And the Shunammite woman has a son who has died, and uh, she comes to uh, a, a, a Elisha in order to in order to have him come and heal her son, but she is deeply distressed. She believes that he can, but he's not sure that he would. So there, there's this, this turmoil that's going on within her soul. So that brings us up to date on where we were last time. Uh, so I wanted to look at weeping in terms of the emotions of life. I'm not looking at every emotion, everything there is to say on this. I just want to focus on this. We'll learn a lot about how to deal with other emotions just from taking the uh, uh, spotlight to this one particular area. So the first point, this is as far as I got last time. The first point was that emotion is the responder to situations, circumstances, events, or even our own thoughts or emotions. We have certain thoughts. We say, oh, I can't believe I had that thought. Oh, I'm just terrible. Next thing you know, we're riding that, that slide down into uh, discouragement and depression simply because we disappointed ourselves uh, to some degree. So we can respond even to subjective things that are going on inside of us. When emotions are intense, we often express that through the shedding of tears. We may not even think about it very much. It may be just almost an, uh, an automatic reflex, uh, 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 reflex action to what has, has taken place. It's, it's spontaneous. So I then covered just some random observations as I've thought about o- over the years. And the first point I made was that the term emotion as a general term is one we use, but there's not a general term in Scripture for emotion. The Bible doesn't talk about emotion as a category. It deals with specifics on different emotions. I think that's very important when we're doing exegesis and understanding certain kinds of of circumstances. Emotions seem to be built-in responses. They seem to be related to us physically. There is a close relationship. And I've gone back and forth over the years. Is, is emotion in the soul or is emotion in the body or is there sort of a connection between what we believe and the body? That that connection between the immaterial soul and the physical body is a very mysterious connection. And I, I do appreciate a lot of what Jay Adams has said. I pointed out a quote from him last time, or I referenced him last time, that he believed that emotions are physically based. We feel things when, when certain things happen. We feel it in our gut. We, 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 we automatically generate adrenaline. All kinds of things happen physically that are uh, 
that, that are res- automatic responses to certain kinds of, of stimulation, for example, in a, a fight-or-flight reaction. Emotions and responses are not necessarily... Now, there may be some emotions Scripture clearly points out as sin, but not all emotions are that way. You have a number of emotions that, that show up that are uh, have a positive side to them, and so inherently emotion is not sinful. Adam and Eve had emotion in the garden, but they were not uh, emotional in the sense of of, uh, uh, of doing away with the, their rational thought process and just operating on on pure pure emotion and subjectivity. That happens as a result of sin nature control, I believe, but that doesn't mean emotion in and of itself is necessarily necessarily wrong. The issue is that we are to look at emotion, evaluate what is going on in our life, why do we feel this way, what are we thinking at the time, what's the thought process, and see if we can't identify what the beliefs are that may be generating uh, these kinds of emotions. So point number two, moving on, emotions in and of themselves are not sin. I'm belaboring that because there are some Christians who think that. Uh, some of you may have heard somebody teach something that sounded like that. Emotions are not sin. But dwelling on them and living on the basis of certain emotions, such as anger or bitterness or jealousy or hatred, becomes sin and acting wrongly on these uh, emotions are sinful. Jesus experienced profound grief and turmoil and distress as he faced the cross. But what that drove him to do was to pray and depend upon the Lord, not to act in some way to say, these emotions shouldn't be here, so I've got to get rid of them. And I'm going to be a little bit facetious here, but I'm pointing at our culture. Our culture is over-prescribed on dealing with a lot of emotional uh, emotional uh, problems that people have, depression just being one of them. There are others. Now, what I'm saying doesn't address every situation or every person, but there's a lot of literature out there addressing this issue of the fact that there's a lot of uh, over-prescription related to certain numbers, uh, certain uh, emotional problems. As Christians, when we have certain emotions, what we want to do is, this isn't a pleasant emotion, I need to get rid of it. Two weeks later, this is a not a pleasant emotion, I need to get rid of it. Two years later, this, is, this can't be God's will for me to have this unpleasant emotion. Jesus had unpleasant emotions. He didn't say, Lord, take this emotion away from me. You had to address the issue. You have to understand that that, that's a test. It's an emotional test. Our own emotions are testing us as to whether or not we are going to make the Word of God more real to us than what we feel or whether we're going to let that, that, that distressing emotion cause us to say, I'm going to do anything, whatever it is, in order to get rid of this distressing emotion. And then we look to solutions that are not necess- that are not biblical. And rather than using that as an opportunity to move forward in the faith rest drill and to learn to focus on the Lord and the joy that God has given us, 
We're focusing on getting rid of a negative emotion that's there that can drive us to greater spiritual uh, maturity. We'll see some scriptures that address that before we're done. Third point is that emotions are never a means of divine guidance or direction in scripture or in your spiritual life. This is another way of looking at this is subjectivity or mysticism. It's determining God's will on the basis of how we feel about something and thinking that, well, God would never want me to feel that way. I've heard people say that. Well, God, well, where in the world does it say in the Bible that God doesn't want you to feel that way? It's just an assumption that is brought to the text. God wouldn't want me to do that, so therefore I'm going to do this. But when we look at the scripture, that's not necessarily true. Fourth observation is that emotions do not involve thought or reason, but may be a reaction which accompanies certain thoughts or beliefs. So in the example I gave earlier with the lottery or with a parent who thinks they've lost a child, then their emotion follows what they believe at that moment to be true. So... um, uh, and, and sometimes this hits us almost instantaneously. The emotional reaction hits us almost almost instantaneously. A few years ago, I went up to Dallas to visit with my uncle. At the time, he had he had Alzheimer's. He was a, a retired uh, World War II uh, and uh, and Vietnam era Air Force Colonel, and he was also a retired pilot for for United. And he had always had had a camera bug ever since he got his first little Kodak movie camera when he was in, in probably 1946 or 47. And he took all these pictures, and my cousins had taken all of these old uh, movies that he had, home movies and family movies and everything that he had done. There are a lot of airplanes, a lot of airplanes. And they had put them all on, on DVD. So when he was in his room at the nursing home, they would have these running continuously on the television, reminding him of family and past things that he had done and everything else. So the day I went up to the uh, went up to the the room there, my cousin and I were sitting there, and we were talking to him. The doctors came and took him out for some reason, and they were playing this, and I, I was just uh, enthralled. I hadn't seen any of these, so I'm sitting there watching them, and this first disc disc started off. And he's flying a, a squad of, uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure, I think it were B-52s. He was a SAC, uh, SAC pilot for many years, Strategic Air Command. In fact, he was the, he's the real pilot. And if you ever see that old film with Jimmy Stewart and uh, June Allison, he's the pilot who did all the flying for Jimmy Stewart in that, in, in that film, and they filmed it up, up in Alaska. So he's taking all these airplanes up there, and that all it is is films of airplanes and airplanes. Everywhere you look, there's another air show. And then the scene shifted to my grandparents' house over on the uh, east side in, in Houston. And he's standing outside, and he's got the camera pointed towards the front door. And the door opens, and my, uh, my grandmother came running out, and then uh, my aunt came running out, and then my mother came running out. And all of a sudden, I realized tears were just streaming down my face. I had never seen my mother walk before. And it just hit me like a punch in, in the gut or something. I mean, it just, it just instantly, 
we have emotional reactions like that. They have nothing whatsoever to do with reason. It's just how events impact us instantly and we react. So we can't evaluate these things and it's not a part of reason. It's just the way we are. God has wired us in terms of our, our emotions. Now, under the fourth point, I think I misnumbered these. Under the fifth point, this should be fifth point. I've got these misnumbered, so that's really point five. Emotions, though, may be a barometer of our spirituality. They're a window into the soul. They may tell us some things about what we believe at that to be true at that time that and what we continue to believe to be true that may help us understand why we're having problems in our spiritual life. So it can give us an insight into our spirituality or carnality. It may reveal, they may reveal to us what is truly important or significant to us. I think many of us in different areas would say these three things are important to us, but we really struggle with these other three things that ought not be important to us. And ideally they're not, they shouldn't be, but they really are. We have this problem with the sin nature priorities and our spiritual priorities that come from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and that's part of our of our spiritual growth. So we look at um, the fact that a number of of of, uh, of our emotions are the result of our own self absorption, and when we're walking by the spirit, by, excuse me, when we're walking according to the sin nature, we are self absorbed, and it's all about me. You just think it's all about you, but it's really all about me. And anything that goes contrary to what I want is going to impact negative emotions. If I don't get my way, I'm going to get angry. If you don't get your way, you're going to get angry. Now, you have different ways in which you're going to express that anger, but if you don't, if people don't act and respond to situations and to you the way you think they do, you're going to start getting irritated uh, with them. And you have to pay attention to that and what those what those uh, particular issues might be. So we get anger, we be angry, we become bitter or resentful or depressed whenever we don't get our way. When we don't get our way, one of the basic reactions is that we become angry. If we don't get our way over a lengthy period of time, then we become very frustrated. If that period of time goes on for a year or two or three, we may become depressed. But it comes down to the fact that we're not getting our way about something, and so we need to identify what kind of self-absorbed goal or objective we're trying to tightly hold on to instead of dealing with it with Scripture. On the other hand, we're, we often get happy and elated when we get our way, when things go the way we think they should be going. We think that we're really blessed of God because my life is what I want it to be. Problem is, we're not being blessed by God at all. Perhaps he's just giving us enough rope to hang ourselves. So we have to look at things more in more than a superficial way. So I want to look at a couple of examples. Let's turn to Genesis 2738. Genesis 2738. This is a story of Esau. I think Esau gets a bad rap. 
and I'll explain that. I went through this when we studied through um, Genesis. In Genesis chapter 27, when Esau and his twin brother Jacob are fairly young, now they lived well past 100 years. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of y'all would like to be characterized by some immature foolishness that occurred when you were 20 years old? Uh, I didn't see any hands. Okay. This is what happens with Esau. When we see Esau later on, when when uh, Jacob returns from Haran after his self-imposed exile because Esau wanted to kill him, when Jacob returns, Esau just it overwhelms him with his joy to see him and and just he, and God has richly blessed Esau in the meantime but Esau wasn't the one who was going to get the blessing from God in terms of the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant and so we know the story that is uh, described in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 27 Isaac is old he can't see real well, and Esau uh, is his favorite. Esau is an outdoorsman. Esau is a hunter. Esau is, fits the image of a hunter. He's he's uh, rugged. He is uh, strong. He lives in the outdoors. He he has uh, hairy arms and a beard and. Jacob is more of a mama's boy. He's more stays at home. He likes to hang around uh, uh, Rebecca a lot, and she uh, and he is her favorite. And so Esau is going out on a hunting trip and wants, um, uh, and, and Isaac realizes his time of death is coming near. So he wants Esau to prepare some of his favorite food. And so Esau goes out and he goes hunting. And in the meantime, Rebecca uh, is a conniver here. It's interesting because those of you who remember Jacob, Yaakov means a heel grabber. It's the idea of he's a manipulator, a conniver. He got that dimension of his sin nature, honestly, from his mother, Rebecca. And if you recall the, the stories about how after he flees from from uh, the from the land down around Shechem and Beersheba and flees, escapes from them and goes back up to Haran to work for his uncle. His uncle's the same way. These are not the kind of people I want to go home and have lunch with on Sunday after church. They're connivers. They're manipulators. They're 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 trying to get God's will on their terms. And Rebecca's already been told by God that the older will serve the younger. The older is Esau. God has already promised that, that Jacob gets the blessing. But she's got to manipulate it. So she comes up with a little scheme, and she she says, Look, I overheard your father send Esau out to uh, get some game and to bring it back and cook it, but I'm going to cook it. I know just how he likes it, and then you're going to take it in. And you're going to uh, present that to him. And so he does that, and he deceives his father. He puts on a hairy garment, so he convinces his father, uh, Isaac, that, that he's really Esau, to give him the blessing. And so he gives him the blessing. And then the next thing that happens, the next thing that happens is e Esau uh, comes back, 
and he hasn't had a real successful hunting trip. At least he doesn't, uh, he hasn't eaten much, and he's hungry, and so he sells his birthright to Jacob for this lentil soup that, that, uh, that Jacob had made. And he, the blessing is, this is like a legal inheritance, and once the father had blessed uh, Jacob, he couldn't go back on it. Even if deception had occurred, he couldn't go back on it. And so Esau then uh, loses his inheritance, and he is just embittered. And in verse 38, we read of, of Genesis 27, 38, Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing? My father blessed me, me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now, is anything in this story about eternal salvation? Not one thing has to do with eternal salvation. It has to do with the blessing and the seed promise that God had made to Abraham uh, that the blessing would go through his son Isaac and then uh, his son Jacob. That's the line of blessing. Now, when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to flip around a little bit so you get to uh, figure out where these books are in your Bible since you don't always go there. Hebrews chapter 12, Esau is given as, a, as an example. And in this passage, I just have the core verses here, 12, 16, and 17 on the screen. But when we look back to verse 12, we're going to see the significance here. And chapter 12 is talking about an, a warning of losing our inheritance. There are various warning passages in uh, Hebrews. And these warning passages are to warn believers not that they can lose their salvation, but they can lose and forfeit rewards and position and privilege in heaven due to carnality and due to a failure to grow to spiritual maturity. And so in verse 12 we read, starting in that context, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Basically what he's saying there is straighten out your spiritual life. Quit walking around in circles and going after things on your own terms, but you know, confess your sin and turn back to the Lord and walk consistently with him. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 14, he says, Pursue peace with all people and sanctification, that's experiential sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. And seeing the Lord, there's not salvation. As we've seen in, in our study of the letters to the seven churches, there are those who are overcomers who will be blessed with a greater level of intimacy and closeness to the Lord. Look, there are going to be billions of people in heaven. Not everybody's going to be on the front row. Some people are going to be on the front row. Some people are going to be in the bleachers. Some people are going to be in the nosebleed section. And when you get to a stadium that holds 5, 10 billion people, the nosebleed section is way up there. And Jesus is going to just appear to be a little speck. So when when the writer of Hebrews says this, that without sanctification no one will see the Lord, he's talking about those who will be closer to the Lord in heaven have a closer uh, approach and intimacy in heaven due to their spiritual growth and spiritual maturity in this life. So he says... Uh, without which no one will see the Lord. It has to do with inheritance. Okay, Inheritance is a major issue all, through, all the way through Hebrews. What's the context of, of Genesis chapter 27? 
It's inheritance. It's not eternal life. It's not eternal destiny. It's, it's that ownership of that inheritance. Esau forfeited that. He didn't forfeit his spiritual life. He didn't forfeit his eternal destiny. God still blessed him richly in his life. God didn't forget about Esau, but he wasn't going to get the primary inheritance that went to the, uh, went to the firstborn. And even though the firstborn wasn't the first in order, because even though they were twins, Esau came out first, firstborn had to do with the priority, the preeminent one. So we get to verse 15, and verse 15 says, looking carefully, in other words, examine your life carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. That doesn't mean that you lose salvation. That means that you are no longer walking according to the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. What happened with, with Esau? He became bitter. He mouthed off a lot of threats. He was going to kill his brother. What was the result of that? Rebecca came in and said, Jacob, you better better get out of Dodge because... Uh, Esau's coming for you, and he's he's serious. He's going to kill you. And so she sent uh, J- Jacob away to spend the next uh, 14 years as a almost a slave to his uncle Laban. Now, that's the root of bitterness. Now, look at verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. It's not that Esau was a fornicator but that he treated his inheritance lightly. Now, in other passages related to inheritance that we have in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 9 and following, and Galatians chapter 5, starting in about verse uh, 19 and following, where where you have this list of the works of the flesh, uh, that... If you commit these sins, it says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. doesn't mean they won't go into heaven. It says that they will forfeit their inheritance. This is what happened with Esau. Say, don't be a fornicator. It's just summing up a bunch of those types of sins, the sexual sins. Uh, don't be a fornicator or a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. That's not selling his right to go to heaven. It's selling his, his, selling out his birthright as the elder son to inherit the primary blessing. Now God had already said it wasn't going to go to him, but he sold it. He treated his inheritance with disrespect. He treated it lightly. That's what any of us do whenever we sin. When we choose a path of disobedience or sin, what we're saying at that moment in time is that my inheritance that God would distribute to me in, in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ isn't worth it to me. I would rather pursue carnality right now than to pursue sanctification. So there's the warning, let, uh, don't be like Esau. And then the explanation in verse 17, for you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing... He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance. He changed his mind. He said, I really don't want to sell it. It's too late. You committed the sin and their consequences, and you lost that inheritance. doesn't mean he lost his salvation. It just means he lost his inheritance. 
He gave up that opportunity. Paul says we are to redeem the time. We're to use our time wisely. We're to walk by the Spirit because the opportunities we had to walk by the Spirit today that we blew, that has eternal consequences. If we had used those opportunities to walk by the Spirit, then that contributes to our spiritual growth and it contributes to uh, rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. But when we live for ourselves instead of for the Lord, when we walk according to the flesh instead of according to the Spirit, then that has a uh, impact. That that whittles away at what we have at the what we will have at the judgment seat of Christ. So here we have e- Esau in this situation weeping. He's weeping because of failure. That's legitimate. There's nothing illegitimate here. When we recognize that we have messed up, sometimes it, it's emotional, and we may experience some, some, some great regret, and we may weep over that. In Genesis 33, 4, Esau weeps for the right reasons. When Jacob came back, he ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept together. Nothing wrong with that. We weep for different reasons. We, one time we might weep because we got caught, not because we are concerned about being wrong, but just we weep because we're caught. Sometimes we weep because there is a genuine desire to change. We really screwed up, and we know it. That's what happened with, with Esau. He knew it, and, and he wanted to change his mind. That's what it says. He, was, he wanted to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. There he found no place for repentance. He couldn't change his mind. He couldn't change course. Genesis 33, 4, he is weeping for valid reasons. He's excited, joyful that because Jacob has come back. Now, let's look at another situation in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Now, I think that there is a, a way in which this is translated that it may not be so much a meaning of literal weeping here as something else, but I'll point that out as we go on go on. This is a situation. The Israelites have gone to Mount Sinai. They've gotten the law. They leave from Mount Sinai and uh, they're getting out into the into the wilderness and they're eating the same old thing every day. Manna, 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 manna. Lord, isn't there any variety on the menu here? Just the same old thing every morning. Manna, 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 manna. And so they complained. They are complaining because of a false belief system in their head, and they're not trusting in the Lord. So we're told in this passage that um, now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. I took this out of, I think the translation I have up there is New American Standard. When they, uh, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. They really got God mad, and he is judging them. It's an operation of his judgment, and there are many who died the sin unto death. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabera, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. They couldn't stick to their diet. Uh, diet of manna. They yielded to the intense craving. They wanted to go back to Egypt for the leeks and the garlics in Egypt. 
we can communicate that way. If you haven't had Mexican food in six months or ten months, it'd be like saying, okay, you can't ever have Mexican food again. You just have to eat Chipley donuts. After a while, you want to have some good enchiladas. They yielded to intense cravings, so the children of Israel also, what? They wept again. I think this borders on whining. They're complaining, and they're crying about it, and they're whining. They are having a pity party, and it's all wrong. It's because they don't get their way. It's they're not, they're not get, going to get to eat what they want to eat, and so they are weeping over this. Now, if we look down to verse 20, uh, God's going to discipline them for this because they're all uh, out of fellowship, focusing on the wrong, wrong thing. And in Numbers uh, 11, 20, I read 40, 20, we read, but for a whole month until it comes, God says, okay, you're going to whine about it, you're going to eat. I'm going to send you quail. You're going to have quail till it's coming out your nose. You're going to eat quail till it's coming out your ears. You want something else? I'm going to give it to you a thousandfold, and you're going to regret it. Uh, so for a whole month, this is going to happen until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept. You've whined, you've complained before him, saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? Okay, next example is in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, again in the first four verses, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation. This is after they have failed at, at Kadesh Barnea. So they have an emotional reaction. Uh, they sent the spies in. Ten spies came back and said, we can't do it. There are too many giants. There are walled cities and too many people. The other two said, it doesn't matter. God said he's going to give it to us. We're going to trust in him. And God said, because uh, the people followed the ten spies instead of the two that trusted in God, then they weren't going to be allowed to go in. So now they have another meltdown. And this is negative. Why? Because they are believing the wrong thing. They, they have totally rejected the truth of, of what God has said. And so they, they break down and they weep. They go on and on all night long. This happens, the same kind of thing happened again in Judges chapter 2. In fact, Judges chapter 2 was such a significant national weeping that and a national meltdown that they called the name of the place where they did it, Bochim, which is from the word meaning meaning to weep. So in Judges chapter 2, we read, Then the angel of the Lord, this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt, brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, but you have... Uh, you shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Therefore, why have you done this? And so at this point, uh, the angel of the Lord says, therefore, I'm not going to drive them out before you. Okay, end, end of game, you lost. I'm not going to run everyone out. I'm going to leave them there, so they're going to be a thorn in your side or a pain in your backside. Uh, all the days of your life. There'll be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Weeping is a response to divine discipline. And it should lead us to, as we'll see, to repent, which means to change your mind 
and then to change course, to turn. That's a word we'll run into uh, when we get into our, our study in First uh, uh, in Thessalonians that I'm working on right now. You, you repent and turn. You don't just change your mind, you change direction. Okay. Then um, Judges 14.16, we see another use of weeping where we have Delilah who is weeping in order to manipulate. Uh, she wants to manipulate Samson. This isn't just territory that's unique to women. Uh, men can also use emotion to manipulate others, and that's what she's doing here. These are uh, some people call them crocodile tears. They are not genuine at all. She's just doing it to put uh, Samson on the spot. She knows that, that, like a lot of men, Samson just gets really uncomfortable when a woman starts crying, and so she'll, they'll just do anything in order to get her to stop crying. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 1, we have this situation. that This is an important example to look at. This is an example of legitimate grief. Legitimate grief. David and his followers have been uh, staying with all of their families and loved ones in a village called Ziklag. And when David and his men left in order to uh, go deal with uh, some problems with the, uh, I believe it was with the Philistines. Let me get to the passage. Uh, to deal to deal with some other issue, helping out with the Philistines, actually was going there for uh, to hide with them. Then uh, the Amalekites came in. These were sort of the brigands of the ancient world, land pirates. Uh, these ne'er-do-wells came in, and they invaded the south, attacked Ziklag, burned it with fire, took a number of women captive, and then they carried them off, and they went their way. So when David and his men came back in verse 3, we read, uh, they came to the city, was burned with fire, their wives and sons and their daughters had been taken captive, so the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept. Now, this is legitimate. This is grief. Our loved ones have been captured and taken captive. And the natural response of that is sorrow and sadness and grief. This is, this is legitimate. And they wept until there was no strength in them to weep. They wept until there wasn't any more tears left. There wasn't anything more. They exhausted themselves. Nothing wrong, no hint of criticism. This, this, is, this is normal. And then what did they do? Then they went and got them back. They didn't let the weeping cause them to just stop and have a pity party. So weeping is a sign of legitimate uh, grief. And look at verse 6, though, as we look at this. I didn't put it up on the slide. So verse 6. Now David was greatly distressed. So there's a, another intense emotion as a result of this. For the people spoke, spoke of stoning him. See, David's their leader. We left our family here. Uh, the the uh, Amalekites came, captured all of our families, and took them off. Let's blame our leader. And so David becomes very distressed because they're looking at him as the enemy, and they're talking about stoning him because the soul of the people were grieved. See, here we see an example of David responding correctly to his intense emotion, but the people respond wrongly to theirs. They're grieving, so let's kill somebody. Let's kill our leader, do something stupid. So 
David, what did David do? He shows what you should do when you are experiencing great distress and grief. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The end of verse 6. That is the direction that we should go. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, I want to cover one more example very quickly. This is another one that is greatly misunderstood. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is a story everybody knows. If you can memorize any verse, this is the verse to memorize. John 11.35, two words, shortest verse in the English, Jesus wept. Now, at a superficial level... You've probably been taught this. You've probably heard this taught. Jesus was grieving. Jesus isn't grieving. Let's look at the context. Jesus knows that in five minutes or less, he's going to say, Lazarus, get up out of that grave and come here. Jesus knows that he's going to be having a banquet that day with Lazarus. So why would he be grieving? They say, well, in his humanity, he didn't know he was going to do it yet. No, 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 no. Read the context. Back earlier in, in, in the day, just, just maybe 15 or 20 minutes before, uh, Jesus is talking to Martha and said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. How clear can it be? He knew exactly what he was going to do. This is why he delayed. He's going to walk up to that grave and he's going to tell Lazarus to come out. He's not grieving because Lazarus, his good friend, has died. Look look at the context. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. So all the mourners are there, all the friends of the family, all their loved ones are there. They follow her out, supposing she was going out to the tomb to weep there. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. His emotions are stirred up because he sees the grief and the sorrow of all these people. He's not weeping because of Lazarus. He's weeping because of what those people are going through. It's the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. God did not design us to go through grief. Grief is part of plan B. Plan A was you're not going to die. You're not going to sin. You're not going to eat from the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to continue to stay in the garden, eat from the tree of life, and build a civilization out of obedience. What happened? They sinned. Death came into human existence, plan B. Plan B brought grief. Plan B is a sign of sin. Every time you grieve over a loss, it's because we're living in a fallen world. Every time you experience grief, a red flag ought to go off in your head saying, this is a spiritual lesson. Life isn't what it's supposed to be because of Adam. Life isn't the way God originally designed it. I'm grieving God knows that I shouldn't be grieving. That is a result of sin. And God has compassion on us for that. That's what Jesus is showing here, is his compassion for the people. And he wept. So my point is that emotion in and of itself is not wrong. There are wrong reasons to have certain emotions, There are wrong responses to certain of life situations. There are right responses to those situations. 
And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with emotion. But we don't run our lives on the basis of emotion. Emotion is something, in some cases, emotion needs to be kept private. In other cases, emotion needs to be kept under a certain measure of control, and we must maintain poise uh, in those circumstances. But in other circumstances, it is perfectly appropriate and legitimate to, to have the, and experience those emotions because we're living in a fallen world. The issue isn't that I have these emotions, something must be wrong with me. The issue is I'm having these emotions, how am I going to handle this test that I have? Am I going to apply the word or not? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things and to realize that, that your word once again addresses life as it is and not life as too many people think it might ought to be. We focus upon your word, and your word helps us to understand the nature of reality. And when reality, the reality of your word is more real to us than our feelings or our experience, then we're truly walking with you and we're learning to walk in light of, of reality. Father, challenge us in these areas. There are many people listening, many people here who may be struggling with different circumstances, different sets of emotions, and we pray that this would give them insight as to the biblical approach and a biblical framework for dealing with their own emotions. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.